Hello, and welcome to the CBC The Rim podcast. CBC The Rim is a church in San Antonio, Texas. Due to COVID-19, our gatherings look a little different right now, but we encourage you to make space to lean in and listen to what God wants to say to you. We also encourage you to participate as you listen. We hope you enjoy the message. What's up, Rim family and friends? Hey, love you guys. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Jordan, well done. Man, so proud of you and the way you and the team are leading us. And uh, I just want to take a second and give a quick shout out to Austin Johnson, man, for last week leading us through the last of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, did a phenomenal job. And I'm so grateful for his heart and his leadership. And uh, in church, the reason that we do this is we we never want to build a church dependent on one person or one personality. That's not the church. It's a people. And we, as a core practice of CBC The Rim, we want to multiply everything, including leaders. And so we want to give young leaders a chance to grow in their leadership and their teaching ability. And so we want to fight really hard for that. And so Austin, once again, Thank you so much for your leadership in our church. Well, uh, this is still, it's a crazy season as we are, man, several months, not several, like four months into um, doing house church and virtual stuff. And and our heartbeat for the rim is we believe that we're actually experiencing church at a really beautiful, in a beautiful way in this season, that we're actually, uh, people are gathering in homes and uh, obviously, with COVID starting to kind of spike again, we're going to kind of pull back. But your creativity, as people are jumping on Zooms and watching the gathering together and creating essentially virtual living rooms and houses, that uh, you're fighting for community and church. I'm so proud of you. Thank you for leaning in and fighting really hard for community in this season. Well, one of the things that we want to do as we continue to move forward is we want the house church rhythm when when we feel safe and when that's smart for us to step into it, but to do house church maybe three of the four weeks a month. And then in the fourth week, we would love to do something all together. So all the house churches, everyone at CBC The Rim coming together. And so we're playing with this idea. Miss Aria, a person on staff, is working really hard to piece some stuff together. But we're thinking about July 25th. And obviously, we're drawing it in sand and everything may shift. But we're playing with July 25th, which is a Saturday. What would it look like for us to meet in a park near the refugee community? Maybe us bring our resources and fill backpacks with, you know, for students that are going back to school. What it look like for us to grill out and serve families that are in need? And we're even right now talking to the Children Hunger Fund about getting boxes filled with food so that we can take it to families in need in this season. And what if we spend Saturday afternoon loving the refugees, lifting up the community, and then spend the night worshiping together? social distance, obviously. But we're playing with this idea and uh, just want to keep you uh, in the loop to see what happens. And so uh, I want to pray for us really quick, and then we will dive in to today's message. Jesus, we we need you today. And guys, we're spread out and uh, many of us watching this virtually, Father, but we still believe that you're moving in in the hearts of your people. Wherever they find themselves right now, I pray that you would continue to speak to them, you continue to move in their life. God, I pray that you'd give them eyes to see you today. God, that maybe they would hear you for the very first time in a unique and transcendent way. So speak to your people. We're listening. 
We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this past weekend, Disney Plus released the live performance of the Broadway musical Hamilton, which is the story of Alexander Hamilton, an immigrant from the Caribbean who sails to this new world uh, and starts at the bottom and begins to work his way up to the top of leadership. And the first act is all about him leading a revolt against the tyranny of Britain. And then the second act is all about them building and then rebuilding the, the country that we call America. And so you may be like, Drew, why, why are you telling us uh, about Hamilton? Well, one, uh, it's incredible, and uh, I strongly endorse it. You should check it out. I mean, there's some of it I can't endorse. It's got some language and some innuendos, but, and innuendos, but it is a beautiful story and worth checking out. And it, it uses hip-hop, which is the language of revolt, and uh, it's just so powerful. But here's the second reason, the main reason that I tell you this is that today we're entering into a new series called Nehemiah. And we're over the, the course of the next few weeks, we're going to walk through this book systematically and, and have God speak to us. And Nehemiah is the story of rebuilding, of restoration, of renewal and revival. It's the story about how God can create something beautiful from the ashes and that he can restore from what was destroyed in church. We need this now more than ever as we find ourselves now in the middle of a global pandemic that is currently resurging. Like we are experiencing an economic crisis we're also experiencing the reopening of our country's deepest wound of racial injustice. We need renewal. We need restoration. We need revival. And so today, as we look at chapter one, this is my hope. This is my, my target, is that, that we would see that restoration and renewal starts with me. Like it starts with me. It starts with you. I love in Hamilton, one of the main songs is called My Shot. And he constantly repeats this idea. I'm not throwing away my shot. Like this is my opportunity, my moment, and I'm not missing it. And I want us to see that revival doesn't start with someone else. It doesn't start with my neighbor or leaders. It doesn't start in D.C. with legislation or who we vote for. All those things are important, definitely. But renewal and revival has to start with me. And until we own that and stop advocating, we'll never see renewal. Church, it is our shot. and We are not throwing it away. So grab your Bibles today and notebooks and meet me in Nehemiah chapter one. And as you turn to, uh, to Nehemiah, I'm gonna give us, uh, I'm gonna try to do this in like three, four minutes. Um, I wanna give us a full recap of the Old Testament. And here's why. 
Ezra, the book before Nehemiah and Nehemiah, in, in the original Hebrew Bible, it's one book. And it's also chronologically the last book historically of the Old Testament. So for us to completely comprehend the context of Nehemiah, we're going to need to rewind and I'm going to kind of try to fly through this. So this is, imagine like that you're on season 10 and I need to catch you up with the first nine seasons so that you understand what exactly it is that we're talking about, okay? And so in the beginning, in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them to have this deep, intimate relationship with them, but not even three chapters into the book. Uh, man totally looks at God and says, no, thank you, and disobeys God. And in that disobedience comes anarchy, apathy, abuse, injustice, brokenness. But God's not done with humanity. And in Genesis, we see that God calls out a man named Abraham. And that he says to Abraham that I'm, I'm gonna show you a land. I'm gonna take you to a country, a promised land. And I'm gonna make you a, a nation. I'm gonna make you a blessing so that you can be blessing to all those around you. So the Lord calls Abraham to proclaim his name among all the nations. And as a father of a future nation, Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. And that blessing grows as the promise is passed from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Jacob's 12 sons, which would become Israel, the nation of Israel. And when famine strikes the earth, God protects his people by sheltering them in the land of Egypt, a land prepared by God's wise, his wise providence. And the people of Israel, they settle in the land and they enjoy peace and prosperity but eventually they outgrow their welcome and they become enslaved by the Egyptians. But God is faithful. And God raises up a man named Moses and leads the nation of Israel out from under the tyranny of Egypt. He leads them up to the border of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And there the people of Israel, they doubt the goodness of God. They doubt the grace of God. They doubt the power of God. So God allows them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years while he kills off that generation who refused to put trust in him. And then under Joshua, not Moses, God leads the people of Israel into the promised land. He drives out the Canaanites and they are established as a nation. But as they begin to look around, they notice that all the other nations have a king, a man that's a king, and they, they want that. They don't want God to be their king. They want a man like all the other nations. So God gives them the desires of their heart, which was a king. And they get like a man's man. Like Saul, according to the Bible, was a foot taller than every other man in Israel. Like he's the best hunter. He's got muscles coming out of his turtleneck, hair everywhere. He's a man's man. Men wanted to be him and ladies loved him. But Saul, like our brothers and sisters in the wilderness who doubted the goodness of God and doubted the provision of God, doubted he doubted God and offered sacrifices that were unacceptable to God and was removed as king and replaced by David, who was a shepherd boy who played the harp. So we go from foot taller than everyone else to a runt. In fact, when the prophet comes to anoint the new king, David's dad, Jesse, has completely forgotten about him in the field. And he presents all of his sons. And the prophet literally says, hey, 
God's telling me there's another kid. And Jesse, David's father, is going, oh yeah, David, I just didn't think that you would want him. And so now David, but the truth is David, like he's a boss and, and he kills a bear with his own hand. So David is made king and under David's kingship, Israel flourishes. In fact, all the threats against the nation of Israel are, are crushed underneath the reign of David. And he goes against the and he goes like against the Philistines and wars against all of these people around him. I mean, just completely wrecks shop and, and building up the borders of Israel. But then David dies and he turns his kingdom over to his son Solomon. And Solomon builds the temple of the Lord. But it's not long before he begins to chase after his own desires and begins to forget the God of the Old Testament, the God of his father. And then his son, Solomon's son, would ultimately lead Israel into a civil war that would fracture it into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is often referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. And the northern kingdom did not fare well at all. I mean, they had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And finally, in 722 BC, the Assyrians laid siege on the northern empire and either enslaved or scattered the Israelites from the northern kingdom. Now, Judah fared a little bit better. And they're able to hang on a little bit longer. They had godly king, then wicked king, then godly king, then wicked king. But 136 years after the northern kingdom is conquered and the people are deported and exiled, the southern kingdom of Judah falls. But not by the Assyrians, but now the Babylonians, who are the reigning ruling empire in the world at the time. So then the Babylonians export and deport the Israelites in the southern kingdom and spread them out across the ancient world as slaves and servants to the reigning Babylonian empire. And so just to catch you up a little bit on extra history, the Persians, they show up and they decide they're going to rule the world. So the Persians now conquer the Babylonians who conquered the Syrians, and the Persian Empire has taken root in the ancient world. And then in Second Chronicles, and I feel like I don't even need to mention Second Chronicles, and so because so many of you probably have this book memorized, but at the end of Second Chronicles, the Holy Spirit hard presses Cyrus, the king of Persia, and tells him that the Jews should be released to go back, or at least a portion of the Jews, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's where we get the book of Ezra. Ezra is the telling of the rebuilding of the temple, the place where God's presence was like manifested among his people. And then Ezra passes the narrative torch to Nehemiah around 445 BC. So this brings us to Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. And this is what it says. It says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, just a couple of things. Uh, Kislev is, it's, a, it's the Jewish calendar. It's like late November, early December. So it's the winter 
months. It says in the 20th year, it's talking about the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. And it's in the citadel, the capital city of Susa. And Persia had two uh, capital cities, they had a, a summer capital city and a winter. And King Artaxerxes preferred the winter one, Susa, so that's where they find themselves. But here's what I don't want you to miss. In this first verse, we're given so much information. Nehemiah, it's a Jewish name. He's observing a Jewish calendar, but he's in exile in a foreign land. And he finds himself in the palace, um, which so means this, like he's living in a place of luxury and privilege, separated from the problems. But in this story in verse 12, we see that the problem comes. And here's what it says. It says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah first asked about the people and then the place. He asked about the citizens and then the city. He says, tell me, tell me about the old country. Like he knew that the people of Israel were sent out to rebuild the, the, the temple. So he's giving, give me an update. Let me know what's going on. And his brother is like, man, it, it's not good. It's not good. Verse three, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The law of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. The report, not good. The people are crushed, our walls are crushed. It's in, the city is in shambles. Now, why so much attention to the wall, the wall of Jerusalem? Well, real quick backstory for ancient, um, is, the ancient world is that a wall represented both your glory and your guard, your glory and your guard. If you have no wall, then you have no protection. And if you have no protection, then just any city and any, any other nation could just step in and just overthrow you. And so where there's not safety, it's hard to thrive. It's hard, man, to really like let the roots go deep. So he said, hey, there's no, there's no guard. But also, man, when their city had these, a great wall, it was considered a bit of pride. It was for the city's glory. It was successful in triumph. So he, when he highlights this, he's saying a lie, he's communicating about the city. But here's what I want us to do. In this back half of this chapter, I want us to see Nehemiah's response. And his response is going to give us five ingredients to renewal and revival, which I think is so important in this season and this time. And so we're going to look at his response, five ingredients. Verse number four, it says, When I heard, so when Nehemiah heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So ingredient number one is this, a broken heart. Nehemiah has a broken heart. Now, it begs the question, why has this not happened before? Like, is this the first he's hearing about this? And, and there's really, there's, there's two options here. 
Nehemiah is either ignorant, has no idea that, that his, his former city, like this, this city that his ancestors like, grew up in, if, if he has no idea that it's being crushed, or he's completely indifferent. He's either ignorant or he's indifferent, and both are wrong. But one is way, way worse. And I believe that it's all out of ignorance. That he lives 800 miles from Jerusalem, the capital city. Like, and this is before social media. This is before Twitter and the five o'clock news and, and Apple news. Like, there's no way for him to get this information. So the first he hears about it is when his brother tells him about it. And the truth is that he could easily have responded with, this isn't my problem. Like, I don't live there. I live here. But watch this. When he has this conversation with his brother, his heart breaks. Why? Because proximity creates empathy. Proximity creates empathy. When you are distant from a problem, when you're distant from a person, it's hard for you to have empathy for that situation. But when you get closer, when you, when you, when you have a conversation where, where the wall's really affecting, affecting this person, when the circumstances are really affecting, the closer you get, the more empathy that you have and the compassion is stirred. And so the truth is, like, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that breaks our heart? What's it that breaks your heart? And love this, this imagery that these, these many men in, in, in the past would say that if you want revival to start, then what you do is you take a piece of chalk and you draw a circle around yourself and then you don't leave that circle and, to, and you beg God, I'm not leaving until revival starts here in this circle. Like I'm not moving until you break my heart and then send me into the world. That your heart has to be moved deeply before God can ever use you greatly. Revival starts with a broken heart. We need a broken heart, but we also need a big God. So church, I wanna kick it to you and I want you to just be honest and, and begin to process what is it that breaks your heart? Point number two or ingredient number two of revival is this, is lifted eyes. Not only do we have a, we start with a broken heart, but the second thing we see in the scriptures is lifted eyes. Verse five, it says this, that Nehemiah said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments. That Nehemiah, as soon as I mean, his heart breaks and then he goes straight to God and he says, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. And I doubt that you start your normal prayers with this phrase, great and awesome God who keeps the covenants of love. But the truth is what, what Nehemiah is doing is he's lifting his eyes and he's gaining perspective. He's going, I, I've, I've got a problem and, and I feel like the problem is, is so much bigger than me. I'm here, my problem is here, but my God is here. 
In Deuteronomy 10, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belonging heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that it is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. When we feel overwhelmed and realize that we don't have the skills or the resources to fix the problem ahead of us, we have to look to a God that's bigger than our problems and our circumstances. And when we realize that we're here and that our problems are here, but God is here, then we can move forward in faith that prayer puts it like gives us an accurate perspective. If you just give you a very simple illustration example. If I'm worried about maybe where like our, our mortgage payment's gonna come from, where our next meal's coming from. And I, I can immediately go to God and go, God, I don't need you to fix this, I need you to fix this. I got a problem, I don't know where, where our food's coming from. But when I sit with Jesus, and before I ask for anything, I'm reminded that he's great, he's awesome, He's bigger than anything that I could ever wrap my mind around. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not holding out. He's a loving father. When I put that into perspective, now all of a sudden when I make my requests known, I can step in with faith knowing he's going to take care of me. He's a good father. So not only have a broken heart, lifted eyes, but then we see that, that Nehemiah has a humble confession In verse six, it says this, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses, that immediately he has this humble confession. He humbles himself. He bows down and he's like, God, we, we've blown it. Like, and yes, maybe like it, this wasn't Nehemiah's, like he, he didn't personally like, like cause all these issues. Like he was born into exile. He could immediately been like, that's not my issue. I didn't do that. That was my great, great grandparents, but he owns it. And he says, even though that I didn't do that directly. I've been a part of the problem. Like I I haven't been faithful to you. I haven't loved you. I haven't cared for the orphan or the widow. Like I've blown it. He doesn't just confess the sins of others. He says, my people have sinned and I was a part of that. Listen, church, we can't just get good at pointing out the sins of others. Like that makes us self-righteous and that will cause you and I to become petty and cause our hearts to shrink and grow small. And revivals are not born out of small hearts and petty people. Revivals are born out of empathetic hearts, people who weep for their people, whose hearts are enlarged and say, if your heart is hurting, then draw close. If If it's your broken, then I'm broken. Then I'll lean in and I'll confess my part. There's this humble confession. Humility is the seedbed of intimacy and revival. We have to own the problem. And until then, 
It's so easy for us to blame other people and when we blame other people, we'll never be an agent of change. Let me give you an example. I think about in marriage, I know this to be so, so true, uh, that I have arguments with Jane, or we have disagreements, if you will, um, and I'm learning that I can say the right thing in a wrong way. That it's possible for me to be completely right and completely wrong in the same breath. That my tone can be off. My timing can be off. And just because like I have the right facts, it doesn't mean I'm loving to Jane. And so church, I, I want us to know that, that the answer to this is humility. Is coming before Jane and, and humbling myself or coming before God and humbling myself. And God, I want to be, like I've got some issues, I've got some problems, I've got some blind spots, I need help. And humility is the seabed of intimacy. That it, Nehemiah is saying it wasn't, like I wasn't part of the nation that broke all of this, but I am a part of the people that walked away from God, so there's room for me to repent. So church, I wanna kick it to you, and I want you to just kind of process this question. Where in our culture do you see that you can be right and wrong all at the same time? Two more ingredients. Number four is an unshakable promise. An unshakable promise. Verse eight, Nehemiah says, remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. There are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. That what Nehemiah is he's clinging to, these promises, says, God, you said it. And if you said it, you're, you're going to do it. You, you made a promise. So I'm clinging to that. I'm bringing receipts. And I'm saying, here it is. Back it up. And God is so quick to say, I promised and I've never let you down. Church, think about this. When has God ever promised you something and him not come through? He's never not been faithful to you. Now, he might not have answered that prayer the way you thought he should have, but he has always been faithful. And so in a season where the world feels as though it's upside down, we have to cling to an unshakable promise. God, you're still in control. You're still a good father. And I'm clinging to that, that truth. The last and final ingredient, number five, is not only one, we need a broken heart, lifted eyes, a humble confession, an unshakable promise, but five, we have to have a willingness to move, a willingness to be used by God. In verse 11, it says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. 
Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. You, you, you see, Nehemiah is a cupbearer, and that doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I. But what that means is that he lived in the courts with the king, that he was the most trusted servant of the king. And in many historical books, that they would put the cupbearer as almost like an advisor of leadership, I guess like actual influential power. And so what he would do is he would not only select the wines for the king, but he would taste them to make sure that no one poisoned them. And if they, if they were poisoned, then, then Nehemiah would take that weight and die before it ever got to the king. So he was incredibly trusted. And he had the ear and maybe even the heart of king. And in this moment, Nehemiah realizes that he just may be the answer to his prayer. God, we want to see you move. We want to see you do something big. We want to see renewal and restoration and revival happen in our homeland. And then as he's praying, he realizes, God, maybe I'm the answer. Maybe I'm the answer to this prayer. And it's so God is whispering to his heart, Nehemiah, it's not by accident that I've put you in this empire, in this city with the influence of this king. And Nehemiah begins to weigh the cost. God, would you give me favor with this king? And he steps into that moment. Church, when it comes to restoration and renewal and revival, God has given you influence. In the church, we call it your, your sphere of influence the people that God has put in your life, in your home, in your work, and maybe in your school and on that team, that God has given you people that you have influence with, that he's asking you to love and to have empathy for and to care and to step across maybe the comfortable lines and begin to restore, to begin to, to, to put back what's been made wrong. So I, w- I want to kick it to you for one last question. And I want you to ask yourself this. Where is or what is your sphere of influence that God has given you? Where do you have influence? Take a few seconds and process. started this whole message talking about Hamilton, and I want to leave you with one last thought. It's a little bit of a spoiler, but not too much. Um, Eliza, which is Hamilton's wife, um, there is a, she's a powerful character in the story. And in the second act, I think the most moving scene of the entire musical, um, after Hamilton has just, man, confessed all of his issues um, on a sent in essentially the newspaper for the world to see. He's destroyed his family. He's lost everything. There's this moment where there's really nothing but really just two chords playing in the background. And you see Eliza and, and Alexander Hamilton 
walking side by side and there's this phrase that's just as a chorus that just keeps repeating and this forgiveness like can you even imagine like it's unimaginable that this woman would even be willing to forgive Hamilton for all that he's done and then you watch in this very theatrical powerful moment forgiveness extended Alexander deserved none of it but there was forgiveness given And church, I I want you to know that we are able to be agents of reconciliation because just like that, the God of the universe was willing to step into that moment and though we deserve zero forgiveness, is willing to offer that and extend forgiveness and it's unimaginable. And because the restoration has happened in our heart and we've been we've been brought into this renewal process of our own lives, then we can extend renewal to the world around us. In truth, just our church, the truth is this, if that if we don't extend renewal, then I would submit that we haven't experienced renewal. And if we haven't experienced, it starts with Jesus. And I want to invite you into that. Would you say yes to Jesus? That's the first step for you to say yes to him and let him begin to restore and reconcile your own heart so that you can then take it to other people. But for those of us that have experienced that forgiveness, that love, then we realize that restoration and renewal starts with me. It starts with you. This is our shot and we don't wanna throw it away. And so I want to kick it to you for one last just 120 seconds and you begin to process, God, what are you saying to me? What are you asking me to do? And then how can I be obedient to you? So I love you, church. I'm so grateful to be in this journey alongside of you. Take this time and hear from God and say yes to it. Thank you for listening to the CBC The Rim podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. If you want to learn more about CBC The Rim, such as our online gathering times, you can find us at cbctherim.com or on Instagram and Facebook at CBC The Rim. We hope to see you soon.